Well, good morning, everyone. I know that uh, many of you have been up for a while. My wife asked me before uh, we came over to the meeting, which, which book are you covering today? Many of these people have been up since 3 o'clock trying to get campsites for next year. They're going to be a little discouraged. They're going to be tighter, tired. I said, oh, don't worry, honey. It's going to be very, very light this morning. I'm only going to cover the book of Daniel and his 70 weeks. It will just be some very light reading for us this morning. So uh, we should pray for extra energy and effort and caffeine uh, to uh, help us uh, get through this next little while. But we trust that um, we'll be able to present the book of Daniel to you, possibly in a way that you haven't quite seen before, simply as we've said every day this week, that we are trying to really get a bird's eye view of these books and the insight into the character of these individuals. We've learned a lot about the personality of Isaiah, of Jeremiah. Lord willing, tonight we'll hear a lot more about Jeremiah as we cover Lamentations. And then yesterday we thought about Ezekiel, who was the, the comforting prophet in the midst of the uh, exile that they were in. God hadn't, was not finished with his people, and he still had a plan for them. Not that God has a plan B, as it were, because he always knows what's going to happen. But he knew their rebellion and rejection and still had a plan for them. That's a tremendous comfort to me as we thought through the book of Ezekiel yesterday. You don't normally think of Ezekiel as an uplifting book, but hopefully you felt uplifted yesterday in knowing that we have a God that cares so much, even when we fail. And today we'll come to speak of Daniel, who of these characters perhaps is the best known. Many of you will know a lot about the character of Daniel. Uh, I've given the title of, of his book, History and Prophecy Attest to the sovereignty of God. And one of the overarching themes that we're going to experience together today is that we need to appreciate that God doesn't see things the way we see things. We know that from a spiritual standpoint, but we also know that from a time standpoint. I made reference to it the other night when we made reference to the vision that Daniel has here of the man who stood above the river. You know, the river flows past. and Some of us have been seeing people flowing a little too fast down this river. But the one who stands above it, whose feet are not inside the water, uh, where they get pretty chilly and numb, as you know, if you've been inside. Uh, But when you stand above the water, time doesn't affect you. So for you and I, 2016 is history. And 2018, if the Lord tarries, is, if you will, prophecy or the future. We don't know what's really come in 2018. But you know, to God, he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So it's marvelous, even in the way that this book is written, where where we are given historical elements, literally overlapped with future elements, to demonstrate to us that we have a, a timeless God. In fact, we haven't talked a lot about it in the previous prophets that notice that their books aren't necessarily written entirely in chronological order either. And that sometimes can be confusing because you and I are so bound by the river, right? It starts up there and it ends down there and we have a, a simple plan for it. But for God, he sees things in a spiritual dimension. And so each of these, the, the, the history isn't just filler between the prophetic events. 
we see how these historical events and prophetic events clearly overlap. Hence why I've called it history and prophecy attest to the sovereignty of God. There's anything you, you feel, if you will, at the end of reading this book is that God is sovereign. He's in control. You might think that nations are big and we've got big military units and we have the power to do this and the power to do that. We have any comparison? I, I, always, I always think of, of you know, Pilate looking at the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine it for a moment with his little you know, broom hat that they used to wear? And he's looking at the eternal God of heaven and says, Know you not that I have power over you? I mean, that's like this tiny little ant on the ground looking up to me saying, Yeah, you want to go? You want you want you want you want a piece of me? You know, uh, I mean, it's 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 a ridiculous thought. Now I have no plans to hurt you, little ant. That's fine. But what a mercy! Extinguish him right there and then. How did he answer that? Oh, graciously. You would not have power if it were not given to you from my father above. Actually, confessed, made Pilate understand that Pilate actually did have power and authority. You know, the little light bulb that you probably turned on last night or, or turned off last night before you went to bed, that's got a lot of light out of it. But when you compare up there, it kind of wanes in significance, doesn't it? God's power is so far above ours. Let's read a few verses together. We won't read all the uh, texts that I've listed here in the handout for you. By the way, did every, did, if you don't have a handout, my lovely assistant here, Sam, uh, he gets lovelier as the week goes on, um, will uh, be able to bring you uh, one, of his ha- one of our handouts. We won't read them all, but I want to read a few pieces to help you appreciate the nature of it. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. Because this is such a marvelous story, and there are so many uh, young people and and less young people with us today uh, that I want to make... That was a joke. Thank you for laughing. um, That we want to make sure that we appreciate this side of it as well. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into Jerusalem and besieged it. Remember we talked earlier about the waves of the exile... Uh, that, that really started back in 586 and brought us to this unfortunate besieging of, of the city. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, which part the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now again, you know me, I like to stop all the time here and make comment. I want to make too much comment. But this concept of the vessels is a very important sub-theme that we won't have time to look at in great detail. But if, if you were in an ancient nation, as I said the other day, I hope you're not, but if you were an ancient evil nation and you go pillage another place, there's certain things you want to extract from them. One of the things you want to extract from them, of course, are what represents their religion or their God, because that cuts to their heart. And sometimes you would actually do some respect by bringing that God and taking it with you and putting it up next to your God. Do you remember when that happened on a different occasion? With Dagon? Right? I mean, you bring home your God and uh, put it up and 
becomes a bit of a problem when all of a sudden you wake up the next morning and your God has fallen onto his face, right? It's a bit of a problem, right? What do you do when God falls in his face? Well, you, you pick him back up and you worship him again, right? You see, the message the Lord was trying to send to them is that there was no comparison with him. In fact, the next day they woke up, it was worse. It's one thing when your God maybe stumbles and falls over, but you wake up next morning, your God's lost his head and his, and his hands, which speaks of his intelligence and of his power. I mean, what happens when your God loses his head and his hands? I mean, while well, you put the head back on, you put the hands back on, you worship him again. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That's what God was trying to show to them. It was, it was, it was, it was absolutely insane to worship anything but the true God. He doesn't belong in a list of other gods. Even gently, the Lord demonstrated this to his disciples, didn't he? You can't put Moses, albeit great as he was, or Elijah, as great as he was, on the same par with the Lord Jesus. There's simply no comparison. So these treasures become important because later on we'll read a couple of verses about it when one of the kings had them and pulled them out and said, oh, well, you know, uh, we can just use these supposedly important religious treasures and use them to get drunk with. And it speaks to what value. What is most valuable to you? When Abraham was offered so many things from the kings that he rescued, he said, no, sorry, I've got a better offer. He'd already met with a different king, Melchizedek. What did Melchizedek Bread and wine. Abraham felt that the bread that was offered to him Melchizedek was more valuable than anything the world had to offer him. Isn't that beautiful? Speaking of the Lord's Supper, but a beautiful meeting it is. But it speaks to us of inherent value. All right, we've got to move on. Uh, verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, of the king's seed, and of the princes. So it's one thing to take their goods, then you bring some of the people home with you. Children to whom there is no blemish, well-favored, skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king that was their plan fatten them up give them a chance to to train well and then they can be servants to the king <coughs> excuse me now among them of these children were uh, of judah daniel hananiah mishael and azariah unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names for he gave daniel the name belteshazzar and to hananiah shadrach and to uh, mishael meshach and to azariah abednego and here's the verse that you've heard so often, but so critical to start the chapter. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Now, you stop and say, why did Daniel not want to eat it? Was there something not right with it? Was he a vegetarian? Uh, was he vegan? Uh, you know, what, what was it? It wasn't that the food was inherently bad. If anything, this is the food the king ate. Right? This is good food. But they had a practice in those days of offering that food, if you will, to their God first and then eating it. 
So Daniel, for his personal spiritual conscience, felt that that was not appropriate. Now granted, he's living there. He's studying there. As I sometimes joked with young people, you know, he might even had a big sweatshirt that had BU on it, you know, Babylon University. Right? <laughs> and he may have supported the uh, archery games or whatever they did in those days. But what was it about this meat? The religious significance to it could not be held in his mind. What is it in your school, in your home, in your workplace, wherever the Lord has placed you, what is it that you say, I can't do that? That does not jive, if you will, with my spiritual conscience. If the corporate business decides to go in this way and I support the business and I'm loyal to my boss, but there is a point at which I say this is not consistent with my Christian character, I cannot do this. I can't be involved in this false billing practice or I can't be involved in uh, cheating our customers or whatever it might be. You will be at your school, some of you are homeschooled, some of you are in public schools or private schools. That's between you and the Lord in your own conscience. But you might say, you know, this activity I can support, but there's something I can't. I'm not going to be a part of that. God help us to have the discernment. What I learned from Daniel is the discernment, not to say thou shalt do this, 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 and thou shalt not do that, that, and that. There are obviously things that are very overtly clear that are right and wrong in Scripture. But what God wants us to learn is that discernment. Where you, if you will, draw the line and say, I'm not going to cross that line. And look what happened when he did that. He had gained favor with them. He clearly had a good testimony. And the prince of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse, liking the children which are of your sort? Then shall he make me endanger my head to the king. I mean, no surprise, right? The supervisor's like, look, if you don't eat and you get scrawny, I, my head's on the, plate, on the table. Then said Daniel, and the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants. He designed a, a little, uh, what we would call a randomized clinical trial, not so randomized clinical trial, right? A little, little science here. He says, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Right? Reasonable amount of time. Let us give pulse to eat and water to drink. So don't give us the meat and wine that you have. We'll just take average, uh, average food. Then let our countenances be looked upon and the counts of the children that eat of the portion king's meat and then deal with your servants. Just give us a 10-day trial. So he consented to this and proved them 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than the children. It was better. They looked better than the people that had eaten the other food. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. And we could read much more. I won't for time's sake. But what a beautiful story. How God vindicated their conscience. Now it's possible that the Lord would have still blessed them had they eaten that. And this is a whole other subject. But there is a matter of conscience in Scripture amongst believers, isn't it? There are some things that are questionable. There are things that if I drew out a list today, I could ask this group and half of you might say, oh, I'm comfortable doing that. And the other half might say, I'm not comfortable doing that. Who's right? You're both right. If you're doing it with a conscience that's clear from the Lord. And we need to be careful how we treat our brothers and sisters. 
That's one of the beauties. I had the privilege of traveling to so many assemblies is you see different practices, different things done. Some assemblies might be more comfortable doing a certain thing. Some others would want to do it a different way. There's no pope to come along and tell us it's got to be done this way. And why does the Lord do that? Why didn't the Lord give us a, a New Testament that outlines every single detail of every, me- every meeting, how it should be done, what we can do, what we can't do, what we eat, what we can't eat, what we drink, what we don't drink? Well, he did a bit of that, didn't he, in the Old Testament? But he wants us to be dependent on him. You don't just have a huge list, do you, at home, and tell your children, these are all the things you can do, these are all the things you can't do. Now, you start with some lists to help them see the distinguish, the distinguishing features between what's right and what's wrong. But eventually, what do you want to teach them? You want to teach them a godly character so they can make their own decisions. God bless Daniel. Daniel is a tremendous role model. And, in my, and to me personally, a hero, if I can use that word. When I struggled with issues and wondered about my, what I would pursue in my career and so on, I still distinctly remember my father sitting me down. Because in our home, the word of God was the answer to any question. And he would sit down and we would read the book of Daniel together. And he would ask me, is this the issue that you need to draw the line on? Marvelous. So much more we could say about it. I won't take time to read uh, the sections of uh, port of chapter two uh, that you might know uh, uh, or uh, later on chapter three that you might know so well. But let's go to the end of chapter two for just a minute. Not only did Daniel <coughs> uh, remain in good health and was brought into the king when the king had these dreams, no one could interpret them. And so Daniel comes to interpret them. And and verse 36 of chapter 2 says, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He's not just massaging the ego of the king. I, I mean, We'll come to this in a minute, but you might think you've got a tough boss to deal with. Yeah, try Nebuchadnezzar. Right? I try winning your boss to the Lord. You know, this is the kind of person who can just extinguish people with a single thought. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven that ye have given unto the land, thou hast made ruler over them all. Thou art that head of gold. Because you may remember the vision was of a man with a head of gold. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, it shall be break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided and there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part iron, part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And look, I can get all into all of the imagery with you and all the explanation to you, but just look at it as a picture. I mean, I can't draw a stick figure, right? Like I'm like the worst artist on the planet. Thank the Lord. My daughter, Alyssa, got her artistic skill from her mother, right? But if I'm even me, if I'm going to draw a human figure, I'm not going to have a big, strong head with broad shoulders and, and brass in the middle and then have skinny little iron legs with clay for feet. 
You can just tell by looking at this picture, even if you know nothing about the book of Daniel, this is an unsteady man. This is someone who is prone to falling. Right? You don't need a neurologist to help us understand the gait of this person. Right? This person's going down. That just in itself tells us what we see of the future domination of this planet. And of course, he was talking about the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom that would come, the Greek kingdom that would come with, with, with strength and force, and ultimately the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire was divided. And the future Roman Empire, the revived, if you will, Roman Empire, that we'll see uh, in the uh, perhaps near future, is one that is very unsteady in its feet. Have we ever lived in a more globally unsettled time than today? Financially? From a war and safety standpoint? Spiritually, clearly? Environmentally? The world has never been as unstable as it is right now. With maybe the exception of the flood, but we know the Lord's not going to destroy the earth again with the flood. So we can go into all the detail here. The book of Daniel has been criticized more than any other book in the whole of the Bible for its prophetic uh, statements because people said it is way too accurate to be prophetic. I mean, as I've listed here in the handout, the, 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 the liberals and others have tried to contest this book to say there's no way it was written when it was. It must have been written in the intertestament period. It must have been written after the, the Greek Empire. But of course, this is God writing it. As I said, he's the man above the river, right? He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And the Lord, of course, richly blessed um, Daniel in being able to expose it to him. And we won't take time to talk about the rock cut out of hand, without hands and so on, just for time's sake. But I wanted you that, to have that initial symbol that he predicted the three nations, the end of the world with the falling of this man. Come over to chapter uh, 5 for a moment. I wish we could take time uh, to read more about uh, chapter 3, which, of course, maybe I could just make a quick comment on. This is going back now historical because we're toggling between prophetic and historical. This is the story, of course, of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what happens in that fiery furnace. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? The the only problem with that story for us is that... um, we get all excited about it, and we're like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd be like Shadrach. I'd be like, you know, king. We're... You know where the real suffering was for those three men? Perhaps their wives and their families? It was not when they faced the king. But with, do we really have to do this? Can't we just sort of um, fake and 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 do we we've got a Houston? Do we have a problem? Let me check to see if there's a contact issue right there. Oh sure. It's not made of clay, is it? Is that is that good? Are we on? Okay, thank you. Um, you know their issue. Do we really have to do this? Maybe we could just pretend about the game, and when we know we're not really believing this. But you know what? That was their line drawn in the sand. We can't do it. 
And the king was enraged. Can you imagine? This is a king who's got some pretty significant authority. There's a lot of story, there's a lot of mentioned in Daniel of people defying kings. Daniel himself, right, prayed, continued to pray, and, and, and as you know, was cast into the lion's den. So interesting that the king, by the way, was the one who suffered through the night. Well, made some lion friends. He probably slept all through the night. It says that the king fasted. They're suffering, but nonetheless, when they're cast in the fire, what a beautiful picture of how the Lord Jesus comes alongside us in our darkest moments. Even the king's like, didn't we put three in there? There's a one who looks like the son of man. Amazing, isn't it? That is what the Lord does. When we struggle, when we suffer, when we bear testimony for him and we we struggle and suffer on his behalf. There are times when the Lord comes and carries us through the fire. There are times when Christians have been killed. Sometimes we don't talk about these sorts of things. But there are Christians who will die today because they're Christians somewhere on this planet. Marvelous how the Lord comes to support them. But come over to, to chapter 5 for a moment. I'm going to read just a couple more portions, uh, and then we can um, uh, make sure we, we pull out the lessons, although we've been pulling them along the way. This goes to the point of value that I mentioned earlier with Belshazzar. King made a great feast, verse 1, to a thousand of his lords and drank wine thereof before the thousand. I mean, how many of you have a thousand-person party? Not typical, right? Uh, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem. Remember, the book started with that, that the king and the princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple, the house of God, which were at Jerusalem. And the king and the princes, his wives and concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the God of gods and of silver and of brass, of iron, wood and stone. They're making a mockery of our God. And in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. So the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. You want to know where a knee knocking comes from? This is where it comes from, you know. Their knees are, are knocking together. And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. Bottom line, no one could know what was going on. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't know how much wine he had had, but I don't think it was a situation of him being drunk. All of a sudden, there's handwriting on the wall. I haven't given you much homework. I'm going to give you two pieces of homework today. I'll let your grade come up a bit higher than what Ken's giving us. (laughs) Homework piece number one, read Daniel 11 before you go to bed tonight. Homework piece number two, spend some time thinking about when God wrote things down with his finger. And that's not too hard because there aren't that many of them. You remember the Lord Jesus wrote on the ground when the woman was caught in adultery. You can think of the Ten Commandments. I'll let you think of others that may fit that same uh, uh, sphere. But the description, of course, the explanation is down here at verse 25. This is the writing that was written. Many, many tickle you farson. 
The interpretation of, the, of this is this. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to Medes and Persians. The issue here was value. Some scholars have suggested that the way this was written, many, many, particularly Farson, that what he would have seen was almost the equivalent of dollar signs and euro signs and signs for the yen or whatever uh, monetary features you can think of. Demonstrating to them unequivocally what his true value was. And you know what? You've been tested. Your value has been looked at and you've been found wanting. God will defend his honor. And when this was a defilement, when the ark was taken and put into the temple of Dagon, the Lord responded. When they started to eat out of those special vessels, the Lord responded. God is patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance indeed. But he will defend himself as he did here. And this issue of value is absolutely critical. Come over to chapter 7, verse 9. Another vision that Daniel has, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, that the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels burning as fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Does this sound familiar? And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's complex, of course, to explain all the imagery of the book of Daniel. But there are very key, there are three evil figures that are particularly important that make themselves apparent here. We often speak of the Antichrist. Ken made mention of it before. And in biblical pattern, before the Antichrist, there is often multiple Antichrists, plural, or this and the spirit of Antichrist in advance. So we see that today. But there were three key individuals. There was the Antichrist, if you will, the one who, as we read when we come to correlate this with the book of Revelation, who would be the beast that arises out of the land, which would be of Israeli background. The beast who arises out of the sea, where the Gentiles would be. Uh, That person is often thought of as the beast or the one who has the political and the financial uh, pulls. And the third would be the king of the north. Remember how we talked the other day that there was uh, uh, an attribution to the area of Assyria, modern-day Syria, Iraq, uh, Jordan, that area, uh, that would also often fight with the kings of the south in, in Egypt. And the king of the north was someone described who had a hatred for Israel um, and uh, clearly had a, fierceful, uh, a fearful countenance. Those three key characters will play a role in the end times. But they played roles early on as well. When Daniel concludes his book, talking about the abomination that maketh desolate, he was prophesying about two events. An event that would happen between the, the uh, uh, Old and New Testament and an event that is yet to come. The event I mentioned uh, the other day when Antiochus Epiphanes left as the king of the north, left 
his, his country to go down and fight in Egypt. A false rumor got out that he was killed, so he went back into Israel and tragically invoked a holocaust, if you will, of the slaughter of Jews and took a pig and offered it in the offering of burnt sacrifice. Took that which was unholy into the holiest of all. That was the abomination to make death slot. That didn't happen until about 165 B.C. But Daniel made prophecy of it right here. And so we could spend all the time talking about the horns and, 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 and the different beasts and the three ribs and so on. We haven't time, obviously, in a single study to do that. But I want you to see that big picture, that battle between the north and the south and how Israel is caught in the middle, how there are religious, political, and financial implications every time. Come over to chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel was a man of God because he was a man of the word of God. I've frequently said there is a beautiful connection in the scripture between those who are intimate and their revelation. Somebody said God doesn't have favorites, he has intimates. We've been hearing so much about the Apostle John, who is as intimate with the Lord Jesus as anyone could ever be. It's no wonder he wrote the book of Revelation. Daniel, I would suggest, is the Old Testament equivalent. He was perhaps the most intimate with the Lord. He was the one who wasn't going to give up his three times a day praying. He, want, he was so intimate with the Lord that the Lord gave him that revelation. And so the Lord gave him revelation. He says, wait a minute. I'm reading here the book of Jeremiah. It tells me that the captivity is not going to be more than 70 years. And he knew the days were coming to an end. But the Lord gave him a picture of what was going to go beyond the 70 years. What, what he describes down here in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And again, much brighter minds than I have sorted this out. If you want to read a great book about Daniel, I've put it here in your handout. It's called Daniel and the Critic's Den by Sir Robert Anderson. This was a gentleman who was actually part of Scotland Yard and at one point of his life was, was charged with trying to find Jack the Ripper. And he was a brilliant individual, a wonderful uh, believer, and he did a lot of the background work to help us understand the dates and timings of the 70 weeks. Each week, if you will, is representing a week of years. And, and, and the Jewish calendar, this is a year of 360 days. Short version, 69 of those weeks have happened already. The, the, the 70 weeks of Daniel will divide into three blocks. There were some that were immediately going to happen as they were able to return to Israel and, and rebuild, uh, the, the, rebuild Jerusalem of which would bring us up to the time, if you look at the dates, the way it was, it was figured, that would bring us to essentially 3rd AD, the time in which the Lord entered into Jerusalem, his final time. That was, if you will, Israel's time clock that was periodically held for a final 70th week, or seven years of 360 days each, which we would think of as the tribulation period that is yet to come. So remember the comment I made before that, that you know, God is, is not bowed by time and, and we might see things right overlapping, but there is a gap in between 
The prophets couldn't see the first and the second coming of the Lord as separate events at times. They saw them together. But here Daniel is able to show to us those 69 years that would come and then one to, to, to follow. God has a plan for Israel. We need to, I think, be balanced as believers in how we feel about Israel. As, as indeed God's chosen nation, he has a future for them indeed. It doesn't mean that every nation around should be destroyed for the sake of Israel. I think we have to be careful and balanced in our view, and there are believers in all of those nations around and believers in Israel. But marvelous how he predicted what was to come. I told you I'd skip over chapter 11 so that you can read it on its own. But of all the book of Daniel, chapter 11 is the one that is the most controversial because it is absolutely incredible in its detail regarding what would come. I mean, he literally describes the comings and goings of Alexander the Great and what would ultimately happen in the falling of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire, the establishment of the Greek Empire and its fall before Rome would come. That's why people didn't think it could be written um, uh, until after that time. Finally, the last few verses of the book, chapter 12, verse 10, many shall be purified, many made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, the abomination that maketh desolate, I've described that to you already, set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. You can think about that time frame in the context of the 70 weeks we just described. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. But go thy, uh, but go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So Daniel has given us this incredible picture of the future of Israel, the future of the nations, and ultimately of the final judgment. As I close, a couple of major lessons here. Number one, faithfulness to God. We've talked about this already. Where is it that you need to draw that line? Number two, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I'm using the phrase of the Lord himself. Daniel was willing to go to a pagan university and serve in the administration of three different kings. He was so highly valued that when the, 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 per, the Medo-Persians took over, they kept him. He wasn't just in the Babylonian Empire. And it's our responsibility in whatever context the Lord has placed you, no matter how small you think your job is, you serve that role well, and you serve your boss well. Intimacy and revelation, we've discussed that. The importance of prayer. I suggest that Daniel's depth of understanding, Daniel's reading of God's word, was bolstered by the fact that he took time to pray with the Lord every day. Have you prayed with the Lord today yet? It's already... 1022, which means I need to stop. Um, but have you prayed with the Lord today? Number five, God has a plan. They respect the autonomy of those nations. But who do you want in your corner? That clay-footed beast that's about to fall over? Or the man who stands above the river? It's, no, it's not a, a coincidence that the, man's, the king's vision was of a man. He was showing to us the weakness of man, our potential failure. But if man is the problem, man indeed is the solution in the person of Christ Jesus. We've talked about the number four already. We've talked about how the Lord stands above time. And perhaps finally to close, the Lord is deeply vested in our time. These tiny details, these descriptions down to the day, these, 
uh, these uh, um, minute descriptions of what was to come, that tells me that God's interested in me. We ought to be thankful for that today. God is interested in you. He sent himself to meet with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego there in the fiery furnace. I don't know what furnace you might be going through right now, but let me tell you, he's there. And he wants to be there with you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the privilege of being here. We're thankful for the God of Daniel. Father, take these words scattered and miscommunicated as they might be and bolster the hearts of the saints here today. Encourage them, surround them. Father, help us to be more like Daniel. Help us to know better right from wrong. Help us to have a strong testimony and hold true to the things that we ought to hold true to. Bless us, we pray. We're thankful for our brother. Encourage him as he speaks to us shortly, too, in his name. Amen.